You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Laura Leininger Campbell is a playwright and actor. An O'Neill National Playwrights Conference finalist, her play Eminent Domain premiered at the Omaha Community Playhouse in 2017 and won the Omaha Entertainment Award for Best Original Play as well as Best Drama. Her plays Terminal and Worms have both been selected and workshopped at the Great Plains Theater Conference in 2016 and 2019. Laura has performed on Omaha stages for over 20 years and taken on roles such as Anna Christie, Amelia in Othello, Doreen in Tartuffe, Mag in The Beauty Queen of Lenan, Maria in Lend Me a Tenor, and Ruth in Blythe Spirit. Her next role will be in a production of the Pulitzer Prize winning play Sweat at the Omaha Community Playhouse. Laura received her theater training from Connecticut College, the National Theater Institute, and received the Lee Strasberg Institute Scholarship training in New York City. Laura Leininger-Campbell. Dana. Welcome to the Green Room. Hello. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad that you could take time out of your busy, busy schedule as we approach uh, the opening of Sweat to come out. Yeah, it's going. It's it's coming up very soon. We have to be off book, I think, this week. Okay. Well, and of course, by the time people hear this podcast, the show is over and we all loved it. (laughs) (laughs) You were fabulous. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> I was very mean. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kathy Tyree. Yeah. So I normally ask people where they are from originally, and I know you are not from Omaha. It's Grand Island. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. It is about two and a half. Yeah, about two and a half hours west of here. Okay. Do you still have family that live out in Grand Island? They don't live in Grand Island anymore. Um, my dad retired. He was an attorney. And so he and my mom actually moved back to the rural area where they met. My dad is from Fullerton originally, and my mom is originally from outside of Palmer. My grandparents were ranchers out there. So they went and they uh, built this, like, gorgeous house, like, out in the middle of this prairie, and it's on the Loop River, and so... We, uh, we call it the Prairie Paradise, and every once in a while, we'll get back there and just go and hang out. So, very yeah. Cool. Very yeah. cool. And if I recall, when you lived in Grand Island, were you there all through high school? All through high school, yep. When you were in Grand Island, there was a tornado that hit out there, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That was 1980, June 3rd, 1980. And we lost, I think, a couple trees. My grandfather lost his house. And, and so sometime in the middle of the night, I was nine years old. I think I was nine. Um, sometime in the middle of the night, like we came up out of the basement and, uh, when did you go down into the basement? When did the tornado warning hit? Oh, I had a, yeah, I had a softball game or my brother had a softball game. I don't know, but I remember looking North that night. And so like from this moment on, like anytime there's a storm that comes down from the North, I'm just like, Oh, that's bad news. But I remember very distinctly looking up at 
the sky and it was just black, black, black and being like, wow, that's, you know, intense. And then we were home and I just remember how dark it got. My dad was still working and my mom made us some food and that was when the sirens went off and we're like, okay, let's go to the basement. So we did. I mean, in, you know, even back then everyone was like, oh, the sirens. Okay. Let's go downstairs. And, and, but it just ended up getting worse and worse. And we had the radio down there. And eventually mom was pulling out like sleeping bags and pillows and we lost power and, you know, things just kind of went crazy. So the next morning, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and and my dad had gone out with a friend of his to um, check on my granddad and like they had to go through all the wreckage off Locust Street and they, they were able to get my granddad home and they came home with other folks. And so I just, I woke up and there were all these people who had lost their, you know, their homes. And there were just, there was another family there. And I remember my mom and dad like made bacon and eggs on the grill. And, and I don't know how long they were without power. They sent us up to the farm a couple of days afterwards. And, and so we just stayed up there. But I do remember waking up the next morning and I had this little Snoopy radio. It was like this little transistor radio with like Snoopy on the top of it. And I was listening to the news and we had made the national news. And I remember running outside and saying like, dad, we're in like, you know, the national news, we're famous. And my dad looks up and he's like working on a tree. He's like, that's great, Laura, good job. So <laughs> I was just, just itching for fame. What grade school did you go to in Grand Island? C. Ray Gates Elementary School. Did you, did they have any class plays or anything like that when you were at grade school? Yeah, they did. We did, did you participate? Yes. It was Peter Rabbit, and I was Mom Rabbit, and I remember I had to use the word chamomile. Mm. And for a second grader, third grader, that was pretty tough. And I yeah. was like, chamomile? What? <laughs> and I remember like working on that with my mom and dad, and they were like, chamomile. I'm like, okay. So yeah, that was that was my first time. Like, That was your first role. Yeah. Mama, mama, mama yeah. rabbit, mama rabbit, mama rabbit. And then where'd you go to high school? Went to high school at Grand Island Senior High. Um, they used to call it Gish. <laughs> so we were the Islanders. And uh, I did theater in high school. Actually, this is this is a really cool story. Todd Ermacher is the director of Ralston High School, and uh, he does like you know these like fabulous musicals every summer with Ralston Community Plays. And he was my drama teacher back in Grand Island. And it was like his first gig as a theater teacher. So he was instrumental in getting me involved in theater. He cast me in like my first play and that was Barefoot in the Park. And yeah, he was, he's, he's a fabulous guy. When you were in high school besides plays, did you, you had mentioned sports, so did you participate in any sports in high school? Or? I was terrible at sports. Ter- <laughs> I was terrible it's right. at sports. <laughs> what other extracurricular things did you do besides theater? What else did I do? Gosh, I'm totally blanking, Dana. I, okay. I know that I did, you know, like theater stuff afterwards. I was in band when I was in junior high. Oh, I did, I did play tennis. I did play tennis. I was on the the junior varsity tennis team, and that happened. (laughs) So. (laughs) (laughs) What instrument did you play in band? Flute. Play the flute, and then by the time I got to high school, I had had dropped that one. So it's easy to drop the flute. It's light. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it froze. <laughs> they have this. They have this parade every year. I think they still do in Grand Island. It's called the Harvest of Harmony Parade. So all these bands from all over the state they come and they like you know march downtown in Grand Island. And so we did it for Bar Junior High, and it was so cold one morning because it's in October. And I just remember, like, my flute got stuck to my lip, and I was like, "This is this blows. I'm not doing this." <laughs> my <laughs> my mother, God rest her soul, would have appreciated that story because she used to ask me like, just random like weird stuff that was my mom, and she was awesome about that. But we were watching a football game one time, and they had a close up of the band and like the tuba players, and she was like. How did their lips not stick? To the t- <laughs> I'm like, mom, they take the they take it off and they put it in a pocket. Mm. <laughs> but she was completely fascinated by that. Yeah, it was cold. So, yeah, she would have she would have appreciated your frozen lips on the flute story. <laughs> so you graduated from high school, if you don't mind my asking, no. in what year? Uh, 1988. And then did you go off to Connecticut College right away? Yeah, I did. And it and so when did you decide in high school or had you made the decision at that point when you went off to Connecticut College that you wanted to do theater? I wanted to do theater. I, I, when I made the decision to go to Connecticut College, there were a couple of other schools that I was accepted at. And I'd gone out with my mom to visit all of these schools out there. And their theater part, department at Connecticut College was was fantastic, and they also had an affiliation with Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, and they have this, it's called the uh, National Theater Institute, and it is a semester-long program, I think it was 20 credit hours, and so I was able to spend an entire semester at the O'Neill with about 20 other young actors, playwrights, whatever. And it was like a, a very deep immersion into like theater stuff. So that was that was why I chose to go to Connecticut. Oh, where in Connecticut? New London, Connecticut. This is fun. It is right across the road from the United States Coast Guard Academy. Yeah. And, and so I think every like semester, if you are a new cadet at the United States Coast Guard Academy. And, you know, so back then people were a lot less, uh, what's the word, woke than they are now. So every, like, I think about twice every semester, there would be a moment where the young cadets were allowed to leave the academy. And they would eventually make their way up to our campus where it was like, you know, kegs everywhere and alcohol was available. And so you would come into your dorms and there would be some drunk zombie, cat, like we used to call them idiots, just <laughs> lurking in the hallway. You're just like, oh, the drunk cadets are here. And you'd just be like, ah. So. <laughs> cadidiots. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you'd always see one and it was like, you could almost like see like the the horror film like frame around it it's like no 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 like oh shit i'm a, is a, it's a four year college yes yep and you graduated with is did you get like a bachelor's or a bachelor of fine arts uh bachelor's in theater what didn't was there like an emphasis in like performance or no it was just a a theater degree i was an english minor so then after i don't even remember what my minor was <laughs> 
now that you say that, I have a lot of people like, oh, you know, I had this as my minor. And I'm like, I have no idea what my minor is. Oh, let <laughs> me tell know. you, like after, you know, like a theater degree kind of follows you around, especially like right after, you know, you you try to enter the workforce. And so right. there's like this unwritten question where they're like, oh, theater. And there's like this like unwritten question in their eyes. It's always like, are you flaky? You right. know, it's like. Yeah. So I leaned on my English minor really hard. Sure. Like, I mean, sure. I was always like, you know, theater slash English. It's like, I'm not flaky. Right. <laughs> I just talk strange sometimes. <laughs> so you so you graduate with your flaky degree in theater. Mm-hmm. And then what did you do after that immediately? <laughs> not theater. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. But no, I, I ended up moving with a friend down to New York City. It was great. We had an apartment. We found this railroad apartment that an alumni of Connecticut Connecticut College had posted down at the post office, and like he had just done it. And I remember my friend Eleanor called, and she said, "Hey, there's this apartment, and it's two bedrooms, and it's like eight hundred dollars." Wow. She's like, "What should I do?" I was like, "You know," and they had like the little tags like underneath, you know, with like the phone number. She's. I was like, "Anything else ripped off on that thing?" She's like, "No." I'm like, "Tear that thing down." And I remember, like, the guy that we rented from, he lived below us. And he was like, man, I was so weird. You guys are the only people who called. I'm like, huh, that's a hell of a thing. So we ended up in this apartment. And then we had two other girlfriends of ours who moved in across the the hallway from us. And so there were just four of us living on the second floor of this brownstone on the Upper East Side. And, you know, it was back when you could afford-ish to yeah. live in New York City. Yeah, and I was well, there for 800 years. isn't a isn't bad. How Mm-mm. long were you there? Uh, three years. Three years. Yeah, three years, three and a half. You know, and so I like, you know, did the backstage and went to auditions and it was just, it was just kind of a grind. Yeah. But, uh, did but you I, do any, did you do any off, 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 off Broadway? Mm-mm. Anything? No, I, I did a lot of like callbacks for auditions and stuff, but I also needed to pay the bills. Right. You know, and that, and, and I think one of the things, you know, that I notice in, the youngsters these days, you know, when they're leaving school and they have like an arts degree, it's like, I feel like they're so much more prepared to go out and like figure out how to make it happen. And back in those days, they would literally look at you and be like, well, you got to go network. And you're like, right, right. And then you'd like walk away and you'd be like, how do I do that? And, you know, and, and if you're, you know, an introvert like me and you're just like, I don't want anyone to like, be bothered by me. That's really right. hard to do. Yep. So I was well, I was very ill equipped to to do that. I, and I don't I don't remember. And I mentioned this to somebody. It might it might have been Stephen Williams. I don't remember. But just like within the past couple of weeks, interviewing people, I seem to recall someone telling me at one point that the way you make it in New York is you don't go immediately. And of course, this would probably change. You don't go immediately afterwards. Like you go and like work somewhere and like save up your money. Yeah. For like a year, like a year's salary. Mm-hmm. You save that up. Whatever you, you know, figure out what the cost of living is in New York. Save up that salary for a whole year to cover that so that when you get out there, you don't have to do a second job. All you have to do is go out and audition go and, and call back and, and yeah. yeah, and do the hustle thing. And I'm like, yeah. that just seems like a lot of work. <laughs> That just seems like a a lot of work. So yeah. So you were in New York for three three and a half years, mm-hmm. and then where did life's journey take you? I got super fried. I got I I was working this job, and it's 
this job was amazing and crazy. And I, I worked for a hat designer. Ended up like walking into her store. She had a boutique on the Upper East Side and just ended up falling into this amazing world of millinery. And so I was her runner. And she, she had a loft down in Soho that was just right above Chinatown. And I was her runner to go to pick up straw, pick up ribbons, pick up all the other notions, you know, get the hats, bring them back down. She had a couple of workers that were there you know, putting the trim on the stuff. But I worked in the stores and she had a store in Southampton and she had a store in Palm Beach. So in the summer, I would go out to the Hamptons on the Jitney and I would sit in the store and like just watch these ridiculously rich people come in and and buy these, you know, foofy hats. And, you know, I I saw that set and boy, was it weird. So I was doing that and... I was I was really missing Nebraska. I got super homesick. And so I I just decided I'm going to hang this up. Like just go home, start a new life. It was like this midlife crisis at 25, 26, <laughs> you know. And I was like, "Okay, let's let's just start over." And so then I ended up moving back to Omaha and I remember I had no furniture. The only furniture that I brought home with me was stuff that we'd found on the street in New York, like people would just throw out a couch and be like, oh, that's a nice couch, you know? And so you would take it home. And so I had a couch and I had this like glass topped table that I brought back, you know, cause I was like, I found this, it's mine. <laughs> so those are the only two pieces of furniture that I had in my apartment. I was at Georgetown Apartments up here on 144th. And I just remember there was like this balcony on the, my third floor and there was a tree and I would go outside every time I would come home, like I was temping, I was like working as a secretary, like just trying to like find a job. Because again, theater degree, are you flaky? Right. So I had, oh God, it was hard. But anyway, I would just go and I would look at this tree and I would just be like, I love green. Boy, boy, I like this. So anyway, so I ended up here and I ended up finally finding a, a job at First Data and I ended up like being there for about 20 years. And and then I slowly kind of found myself getting into theater here. I used to like, they used to have the audition notices in the World Herald yep. on Sunday mornings. Yep. And so I, I would be like, oh, I could try that. I could try that. So, you know, I ended up auditioning for a couple of things at the Playhouse. That's how I met Susie Collins. And the very first play that I did was at the Playhouse and it was the heiress and I was a, a maid. And so like, that's the last time that I've worked with Susie. And so now I'm doing sweat with Susie and it's like, oh, it's so great. And you're not a maid. No, I'm not <laughs> a maid in this one. There's, there's no maids in sweat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that was cool. And then one of the f- other first shows that I did was with you. And it was Ray Hooker's play. And I cannot, I was trying to remember it on the way over here. Children of the Tree. Children of the Tree. Yeah. And you were like a beautiful Joan of Arc in that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I didn't realize, I guess I didn't realize that was one of the first, one of the first shows that you had done. Yeah. You were, you were amazing in that. Oh, and thank I just, you. that's when I was like. That was a fantastic show. It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. So I think that. That is the only show we've done together. I think but we've so. been but we've been friends for like a really long time and that's the only time mm-hmm. outside of our playwriting yeah. kind of coexisting and shattering the glass. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's... we gotta rectify that. We gotta do something. Yeah, we do. We do. Well, there was that one time where you and I were like, 
I don't know, like hashing some shit out on Facebook. And we were like, we need to put together this play. And, it was, <laughs> exactly. and I don't remember what I don't it remember. was. I'll have to go back and look. Yeah. And, yeah. But it was it was just something ridiculous. It was like, we need to write a spoof on this one. Man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. It was like, oh, that'd be so fun. Yeah. So you've done plays all over town. So you've done stuff at the Playhouse. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of things at Bridget St. Bridget. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you've done at Bridget St. Bridget and... Uh, a little bit about uh, because you've done a lot of their Irish plays. Yes, yes. Bridget's Bridget's like my 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 soul's home. I think for theater, just it, I, it was because of Bridget that I really got back into theater and acting. But yeah, I uh, I did a lot of their Irish shows. But the first one that I did was it was Chekhov, and uh, I can't remember. Oh, it was the Cherry Orchard, and I was the the freaky governess with the gun, you know, with like a, a a rifle. I remember I got to hold a rifle and I was like, well, this is cool. But yeah, I ended up doing like a lot of stuff with them and their Irish shows are always just a, a kick. So Kathy Kurz is very good at, at teaching Irish accents. So <laughs> every once in a while, like something will come up and I just file back into Irish. There you go. So it's there. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done stuff at the Playhouse, Bridget St. Bridget. Where else have you uh, performed? Blue Barn, Snap, Shelter Belt. I think in the last few years, like, uh, you know, a lot of stuff at Shelter Belt and the Playhouse. But, I mean, it's this is the first time I've been back on stage, I think, for about two, three years. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, exercising those old muscles. When did you start getting into playwriting? I got into... A conversation one time with uh, Jill Anderson. She's a, a artist here in town, and she was pulling together a literary festival over at the Jocelyn, yeah, at, at Jocelyn Castle. And she had asked if I would be interested in pulling together a performance about the Bronte sisters. The whole literary festival was going to be about the Bronte sisters. <laughs> and I I suck. I had never read Wuthering Heights, but I had heard everybody, they would just like sigh and they'd be like, oh, Heathcliff, like, oh. And I was like, I should read it. <laughs> and because they were like, would you do something on Wuthering Heights? I was like, yeah. And, and so then they they hooked me up with this real dear friend of mine. Her name is um, Lisa Beth Bichelt. She's a um, Dr. Lisa Beth Bichelt. She works over at UNO. And she's a, a medievalist and very good at like, you know, just pulling together. She, she's the brains of the operation. I was doing more like the drama, but she did a lot of the, the literary commentary. And, you know, as so we pulled this piece together. So I read Wuthering Heights. And I remember looking at my husband and like, I'm halfway through the book. And I'm like, Heathcliff is a jerk. <laughs> this guy's a dick and I, I remember going oh I don't know if I gonna I don't know if I can do this <laughs> and I remember like meeting Lisa Beth LB we call her LB and she sat down and I was like hey I should probably tell you <laughs> I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna figure out some passages and you know I'll I'll act them out and I'll find some stuff <laughs> I was like but wow I'm not a big fan of this play and she's like I hate this book and so I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Like, we both came at it. like, and, and it was really cool because we came at it from a direction being like, how, what was she thinking when she wrote this book? You know, because he's, he would not do well in the Me Too era. Yeah. Heathcliff wouldn't. So I have to admit, I've never read Wuthering Heights. So, mm, yeah. 
You should, and then like there'll be three of us. We'll just be like, yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll just start like a book club of like things that we haven't read. Like, like, like I haven't read Wuthering Heights. I know, and like everybody talks or about be, it. And be like the musical version of I've never listened to Hamilton. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there are all those books that you know you kind of read in college, but you right. kind of like leaned on the Cliff's Notes. And, oh yeah, you know, like Moby Dick. I was like, right. I should really read Moby Dick. I went to an all girls. I went to an all girls Catholic high school, and we had to read Anna Karenina. And yeah, uh, that's one I haven't read. Yeah, it it just it huge, sounds bad. <laughs> hugely hugely long book. It sounds like sleep. Yeah. It, <laughs> It does, and uh, and spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read it, who who may want to read it, th- this is like a huge spoiler <laughs> alert, but it's integral to the story. So it's a huge long book, and we had like I don't know, like three days to read it. We go in, and and Sister Angelica uh, comes in, and, and she <laughs> she sits down, and she's like, "Well, let's talk about how horrible it was when Anna threw herself under the train at the end of the book." <laughs> And my friend hadn't gotten through it, and she slammed the book down. She goes, well, no sense in reading it now. <laughs> thanks, Sister Angelica. Thanks, Sister Angelica. Spoiler. So, yeah, spoiler alert. So That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of Cliff's Notes versions. And... Seriously, at the end of the book, she throws herself under the train? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus. I don't even remember anything else about that book, but I remember that particular moment of Man. she throws herself under a train. And I know we're off subject, but can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, let's talk like, about that. Seriously, books that like end like that. Yeah, it's I actually have a name for them. It's like a throw across the room book. Yeah, like Cold Mountain. I remember reading Cold Mountain and being like, "This is brilliant," and it's it's like Ulysses, and he's just wanting to go home, and and it gets to the end, and he dies. <laughs> And I, rem- I was in the living room. I was home from college or something. I just like went, ah, and I like, threw the book. And mom's like, you got to the end of the book, didn't you? I was like, Ugh. Yeah. I hate those books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, theater. So- <laughs> ah, great topic. So... You how so how the Bronte so how the so the piece went so did the piece was it received well? Yeah, it it was, but it was it was really fun to go through. I did a lot of adapting. That's how I ended up getting into this. I I was doing a lot of stuff for the literary festival because then it just kind of became a yearly thing. So I did one thing for Oscar Wilde, and and I did kind of an adaptation of Picture of Dorian Gray. And then I did an adaptation of Bram Stoker's story. It's a, a novel of his called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which is kind of an original or the origin of the mummy. Mm. It's all about, you know, a, a, a bunch of old white dudes that go and they find a mummy and they bring it back to England and mummies ensue. But anyway, I, I remember talking to Ellen Struve about it. And at, at this point, Ellen and I had become friends. And um, she, I remember, like, very specifically, she looked at me one day, and, like, Ellen's got that beautiful, like, low voice. And I just remember she, like, looked at me and was like, you have original stories in you, Campbell. And I was like, oh, yeah? And she's like, yeah. And, and she actually gave me this little leather-bound notebook. And she was like, go write stories. And I started taking some notes um, about Eminent Domain in that little book. And so Eminent Domain was the first original play that I wrote. So let's talk about Eminent Domain. Yeah. The seed, the germination of the idea, and let's talk about it from start, from page to stage on the Omaha Community Playhouse. Yeah. I remember... 
And for those, so let's start out with, for those who don't know the story of eminent domain, Mm -hmm. why don't you tell us a little background on the story itself, and then that'll help us to get Mm -hmm. to the seeds of germination. I knew that I wanted to write a story about a Nebraska family that lived on a farm. There are just a lot of memories that I have as a kid going out to my grandparents' farm. Um, There are a lot of memories of my grandparents on my dad's side. And this was a really good way for me to talk about a family and start incorporating some of those stories and, and you know, just some of the, the dynamics of a family and also of, of just life on a farm. There's, I, I, there's a lot of, of grace and nobility in farming, and I think a lot of people, especially here in Omaha, they just, you know, they're not exposed to it as much. But, you know, for us, you know, that are transplants from – outside and more rural stuff back to Omaha. It just it just fit. And then I'd been following the the fight about the Keystone pipeline. And I just it was one of those things where I just started to feel very strongly about the Keystone pipeline and thought this would be a really good intersection of these two subjects into a story. And so what I ended up doing was writing a story about a guy who is approached by someone from from the pipeline company and he's he's a little bit of a of a crusty dude and i remember writing that first scene in eminent domain where the the guy you know gives a piece of paper to the to the farmer and the farmer's just like get off my land and the guy's like well i'll be back and and so that was how the play began so i worked on that and drafted it and then i started submitting it around to contests and and stuff and uh, I ended up getting selected as a finalist for the O'Neill so that was and had you already had the stage reading at Shelterbelt before the O'Neill no we were in the process of preparing for the stage reading when I found out about the finalist so it was it was great timing so like as soon as we were able to announced that it was a finalist I think the reading at the shelter bout was like a couple weeks later so it timed out really well but then from that reading that was when some folks who had been at the reading introduced it to the reading committee over at the playhouse and so then the playhouse picked it up and we we um, produced it and it was a great experience those actors were amazing and Amy Lane is just you know an amazing director so I'm curious about the process because your husband, Michael, yeah. did the music, yes, did, did the original music yes, for Eminent Domain. Mm-hmm. So And you can buy it on iTunes. <laughs> you can. Yes, you can. You can. Michael and can. you can buy your play on Amazon. And you can buy my play on Amazon because my husband is also a online publisher. So it was a really lovely gift. He actually published it and gave it to me for my birthday. That was like I got a little box with a real book and I was like oh thank you so yeah but he is how cool is that yeah so was there any sort of collaboration at all between the two of you yes for the music yeah and how did how did that how did tell me about that process because I think that would have been really really cool I'm happy to talk about it because it was super fun because you know he Michael is is like a renaissance man he's he's a writer and he's a singer songwriter and a book publisher and he juggles I mean literally juggles and rides a unicycle too he's amazing but he uh he'd been watching the the genesis of this play and I'd been having him read it and so he was just as invested in these characters as I was and I had actually made like kind of a significant change at the end 
of eminent domain. And I remember he was just like, don't change. I'm like, no, I'm going to change it. So, I mean, he's, he's been invested in this project just as much. And so when we asked him to do the music for this play and, and all the incidental music, I had a, a, a very strong sense of, of what I wanted it to be infused with. The character of Rob and, and his entire family, the McLeods, they're, they're of Scottish ancestry. So I knew that I wanted to put in like Celtic drums and that Celtic sound and, and all of that. And, and so then Michael was like, yeah. And then he found like a penny whistle and he was able to like add that stuff in. But it was great because we knew that we were going to use the each scene was going to have a different tone to it. And there's a moment in the middle of the play where there is just a ramping up of tension. And I remember having like a meeting with him. Like I was like, we're going to meet, we're going to talk about this. And so I would say from this transition at the end of the scene into the next scene, here's the emotion that's going with it. And and he would be like, okay. And so we, we took notes in the transition of every scene and, and, Basically, it was like we had a palette of instruments and we had a palette of emotions. And I remember like the only time we ever like really got into like a like I'm holding up my quotes, like negotiations was was when I was wanting the music to be just a hot mess. And he was like, no, I want it to you know, be more melodic. And like we ended up like, you know, in, in a good spot in the middle. But it was fabulous to work with them. He uh, there's this one song and it called Billy's Theme. And I remember the first time he played it for me, I just cried. It, it's just a beautiful song. So. Yeah, it was, I was very, very happy and lucky to have him writing the music on that. So my question is, if and when uh, this gets produced elsewhere, is it going to be insistent upon you that Michael's music is done with the show? I would love to be insistent, I mean, but like at this point, I'm, I'm, it's, it's the bad networking thing. I'm like, I don't want to bother you. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is really good music. And actually, I, I do I think know, that it's compelling enough that you can like have it go along with it. I, sure. Because you know. I know sometimes when you get shows and they're like, this is the music that goes with the show. Mm-hmm. And I think you have an opportunity to decide whether or not you want to do it or not. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I would love to say yes, absolutely. But I also do believe this strongly as a writer that once the play is out, it's out of my hands. And I... Th- you know, there might be something that somebody else wants to do with it. And I, I just, the thought of being like super rigid and being like, you have to do it this way never goes well. Mm-hmm. There has to be some kind of sense of collaboration. I think the music stands well for itself and everybody would be, or anybody, you know, who didn't use it would, would be dumb. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's not say dumb. They would be, you know, they, it's just really good music. Talk a little bit about your collaboration with Marie Shute on Shattering the Glass. Oh, Marie. She's such a good person. Um, she is. Was that the first time you had collaborated with someone? Mm-hmm. It and, was. And what? Uh, how did you approach that? Obviously, it's different than... Where were you in your writing process? Had you... I mean, you... Obviously, you had the things that you'd written for the mm-hmm. Jocelyn. Mm-hmm. Eminent Domain was already out at that point. So you're used, you have a palette of scripts that you've worked on by yourself. You have a writing style, a way of approaching your pieces. So now you have to work with somebody else and they have their own style. So how do you mesh the two? I think 
the way that we did it, we would meet on Saturday mornings, like either at her house or over at my house. We would, you know, have like, you know, a little bit of food before we got started. And then we would just sit with a computer and just, just go, you know, through. At the beginning, I remember like, we were like, okay, they're in a room and they're in, and so we just kind of worked it out and then came up with the dialogue together. And then when we had an outline of the entire piece, then it was more like, I will take this moment and then Marie took another moment. And so then we would like kind of fill in and, and add more life to those. Um, Laheim for people who don't know, is about a wedding day. Yes. It's, it's a girl who's just afraid to go out there and get, get married. And so she's locked herself in a room and everybody's like, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And Marie's ending to that play is so touching when the the groom finally comes in and they have that chat and it just always just shreds me like mm-hmm. that that's a beautiful scene at the end who came up with the idea I think we both did I think I think it was Maria's or yeah it was Marie's like I've been thinking about this and I was like oh I like that and so we just kind of like jumped on that I think it was Marie's when you sit down to write, what is your writing process like? Well, I dick around on the internet, <laughs> and then so you so you get the, so you get the germination of an idea. Yep. How do you? And this is always fascinating to me because I always think that I don't ever have like original ideas. So, mm. how do like for worms? What is worms about? How did you come up with the idea? Worms and is... this is your latest play that was yeah. just had a reading at the Great Plains Theater Conference mm-hmm. this past summer. Yep. Worms was a different one. Worms kind of came up and knocked everything to the side. Basically, Worms is about the apocalypse. And it all takes place in a bar in Worms, Nebraska, which is a real place. Population? And Ten. Ooh. It's an unincorporated town, and it's there is when you drive through, there is a church on one side of the road and a bar on the other side of the road, and that's it, and like two other buildings, and then you just you know find your way going through. I do love that when you drive through Nebraska and you, there's a town name there, and it just says unincorporated. Yep. and you're like, I love that. <laughs> yeah, the the germination of that story. There was a raid in O'Neill last year, about this time. And there were a number of agents who came in and took a bunch of immigrants, migrants from three areas in O'Neill. And they bussed them down to Grand Island. In that raid, there were a lot of people who were working together, like fathers and mothers, and their kids didn't have anywhere to go. And so, you know, there were some members of the community that, you know, stopped up and, and took care of these kids until they could figure out where their parents were. But it's, I wrote that play because it, uh, it was an exercise of being like, okay, here is where we see ourselves now. What's going to happen down the road if nothing changes? And so I, I just kind of extrapolated on that. And I was like, what happens in a future not far from now where if we don't change direction where we're going to end up and it, it really is that that phrase you know when they came for when they came for someone I didn't do anything when they came for someone I didn't do anything right. and when they come for me who's that's right and and so it, it really is is that kind of frame 
I will say that the things that I wrote last summer when I was extrapolating that idea, it's been real eerie because there are things that are happening right now that have been proposed that I put in my play and thought, and it was fiction then. So that's that's a piece that kind of has been creeping me out. But yeah, it's it's a it's a hard story that one. But I'm it it's it's been a very interesting exercise. When you sit down to write, do you like have like a routine? Like I get up in the well. I mean, and I, and <laughs> I know you have a I know you have a day job, but I mean, do yeah. you have like do you set aside like okay, every day I'm going to set aside two hours, and however much I get knocked out in those two hours, I get knocked out in, or how how do you approach writing? itself the process right now it's pretty scattershot I really would like to be more disciplined in my approach and I think once right now like all my brain space is occupied like with actor stuff so once you know we've we've got sweat up and running I'm gonna try to like make that more of a practice because I think it's important it was it was really fun to be at the Great Plains conference earlier this year and be hanging out with all these playwrights who have the time to like put it in their day and they make sure that it's you know that that practice has has really worked and mine has been much more scattershot just because the job and you know other stuff but there's there's no reason why I couldn't make it more of a practice sure I'm trying to remember what was his name Ted Couser. he's a poet he's a poet I remember he would get up every morning at four and get his work done and then go off to his job like around eight o'clock and I was like I could I could do a four o'clock in the morning thing Mm, I could not (laughs) I could not no yeah I could not yeah but I admire the people who can I do too I do too so let's turn our attention then to acting sweat is coming up Uh, like I said by the time everybody hears this it will be done but I really am a lot nicer in person (laughs) We'll remember that. <laughs> how do you approach your characters? How do, how, how do you, yeah, what's your approach to coming up with the character that you portray on stage? I think one, I, I think my process has always been, how do I say this? It's, I'm one of those people, for better or worse, I go with my gut. And sometimes it goes the wrong way. And so, you know, I, I do depend on a director to be like, I don't know what that choice was, but real, roll that back, girl. But I, I think getting involved and in, in introducing myself to the character, there has to be some kind of hook that resonates in me. And, and I think actors by nature are completely empathic. You have to be you know, in order to like see where someone is coming from. So I always like try to find out what that hook is. And and usually it generates some kind of emotional response in me. And so that's kind of like the piece that, you know, I'll, I'll like hook on to first and then build from there. Actually, writing for me is kind of the same thing. There always starts with like some kind of little acorn that grows into something. And I'll interrupt you for one second. Yeah. You had said, I believe you said earlier that it had been like a couple of years mm-hmm. before between the last time you appeared on stage and now are you particular about the roles that you go out and audition for yeah and I I don't mean to say this to be disrespectful but I really do feel my age (laughs) and I think when you're younger 
it's so much easier to like jump into a role that's going to be doing, you know, things that make you uncomfortable or like, you know, something like that. And like, now I think I've become like a little more protective. And so it's, I, I, I do like look at the roles that I'm looking at a little bit more with a long eye to be like, okay, I got to live with this person for a long time. So make sure that you've got something that's going to, you know, keep them alive in you that's, you know, going to allow you to live together. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what is the story of Sweat? It is the story of steelworkers, three steelworkers. They're women and they work at a steel tubing plant in Reading, Pennsylvania. Lynn Nottage is an amazing playwright. I've I've never had an experience like this one where you can just look at the words on the page, but then as you are in the rehearsal process, like just how deeply the the feelings go and how how deeply mined the emotions are in this and the struggle of these women and and their sons because their sons are also working in the steel mill and it's between the years of 2000 and 2008 and what Lynn Nottage did as a playwright is she did tons and tons of research in Reading, Pennsylvania working with these folks that lost all of their jobs post NAFTA all of these jobs you know ended up you know going down to Mexico and and so that whole place is depressed now and I know that they've taken this play on tours all through the Rust Belt like up through Detroit down through Ohio and it it really is an exploration of for me it's your sense of worth comes from your occupation your work is what defines you what you produce defines who you are and to have it taken away from you and and to not have anything to fall back on it really is it is eye-opening and wrenching to watch these women and and the struggle that they have from a very strong friendship and and as be as things become more unstable their lives change and it's also an exploration of how when you don't have the things around you that give you worth how you turn on other people and and so it's it's a i think it's a great play but it's it's there are some some scenes in it that are just wrenching not only the story of the steel mill and the the after effects of of that closing down but the the disintegration of you know, these two women who are such good friends mm-hmm. and their sons are such good friends and how that dissolves mm-hmm. over, you know, over a decision that is made by neither one of them. Right, right. And and how, you know, these these women who have such a tight friendship, how it's impacted, you know, by racial issues, mm-hmm. you know, and how that becomes twisted up into it. And it's 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 just this this descent into the dark, dark parts of people who don't have anything to make them feel safe, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yep. Yeah. How does the themes of the play resonate with what's happening in the world today? Oh, I, you know. Or does it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think 
for me, and and my character is is someone who who really does make that descent. She she ends up, you know, being on attack mode, and and her prejudices become much more apparent as the play goes on. And so I'm living inside this person who used to be absolutely fine. And so for me personally, you know, when you see the prejudices and just the outright craziness that's happening in this world right now where it's okay for people to say racist things and for people to just basically embrace it and walk around with a sign. It's it's when I'm playing that character, you you can't judge someone. You have to be like, how did you get here? And so it's been for me a, a very good exercise to be like, how does someone get to that? You know. And there was this one moment when we were in rehearsal, and and there's a moment in the play where Tracy, my character, ends up almost like we saw back in like 2016, like during the election when these rallies that you would see people just kind of taking the racism out for a walk to see how it would go. And and there's a moment where she does that. And I thought that's, that's the moment where we started and, and, you know, now things, you know, have gone bananas, but you can see where it starts. And, and that's, that's something that I turn around in my head like a Rubik's Cube a lot these days. Yeah. What is next for, so has Eminent Domain, are you still sending it out to festivals and things like that? Still sending it out. I need to, you know, keep keep doing that. And then I'm sending worms out on stuff. And then there's, you know, some other projects that I'm like looking at right now to like just, you know, spend some time over the winter writing, which will be good. So yeah, yeah. So you continue to use that journal that Ellen gave you to mm-hmm. jot down ideas for plays? I, I still have it, yep, yep. How many plays are floating around in your head right now? I have, I have a few. I have one that I just, I still, it's, it's, I'm starting to like think of trying other formats for it. I've I've been starting to think about writing essays, books, stuff like that. So I don't know where that's going to go. I kind of woke up with that feeling, and I don't know if it's going to last very long. But I sure do like writing dialogue, and I sure do like the process of, of you know, being in rehearsals and having actors, like, you know, take a bite out of stuff. It's fun. Is there one that you prefer over the other? Writing or acting? Mm-hmm. It's definitely not directing. <laughs> I no, serious. Like I remember, I directed like one thing, and it was it was over at the Jocelyn, and I remember like running into Amy Lane and and Ellen afterwards, and they were like, "Hey, you know, you did this, like, good job." And I was just like, "I'm never gonna direct again. I smell like fear, and I smell like feet. I don't want to do that again. I don't know how directors do it. It's just it's too much to keep in your brain. But I I I'm really liking the writing. I I think. It's, it's, it's much more meditative, and it's, it's a nice place for me to be. So I, I think I'm going to, you know, keep doing that. What's your favorite color? <gasps> Ew. Today it's green. It's green for a lot of people. Yeah? Dark green, light green, any particular green? Mm, dark green, forest dark green. green. Okay. If you could go back in time and have lunch with anyone, <gasps> who would you like to have lunch with? Oh, man. Oh, I'd love to have lunch with my grandma, my grandma Leininger. 
she was she was a good lady. Who's your favorite playwright? Oh, that changes by the day too. <laughs> I right now I'm in this mode where I I really like irreverent writers. I really like writers that have that that present a hot mess, and and so I'm really into Jez Butterworth right now. I I think the Ferryman and Jerusalem are fantastic. I I love Martin McDonough. I wish that he would keep writing plays. I know that he's doing films and stuff like that, but you know, The Cripple of Inishman and and Beauty Queen Lila Nine and all those plays are just fantastic. And I, I really love Lynn Nottage right now. I actually tweeted at her today. She's up in, in Minneapolis. I think they're doing a production of Sweat up at uh, the Guthrie. And she was like, yeah, I'm watching a rehearsal here. I'm like, hey, Lynn, I'm doing it here too. So <laughs> Maybe she'll retweet you. I don't know. I'll be a fangirl. <laughs> there you go. Do you read a lot of plays? Not as many as I should. I yeah. think yeah. I don't have a lot of time. And so I really do love finding a good novel. Like if... if and so that's kind of like my comfort thing. And I love to be surrounded by like tons and tons of books. And so novels are, are really my jam. I should read more plays. But by the time I'm like done acting a play or like, you know, doing something, I'm like, I want to read a book. Sure. Yeah. What kind of play, um, what kind of books do you like? I adore Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. It's one of my favorites. The Alienist by Caleb Carr is fantastic. It's an older book, but it's it takes place at the turn of the century when the beginnings of forensic science were just beginning and it was like Freudian weirdness and they thought it was like voodoo. And so there's a guy who is the first criminologist, like the first, what do you call it? Profiler, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. but they didn't call it profiling then. Right. So it's, it's just this whole story about him and his little ragged team of, of people. And one of them is a secretary that works for Teddy Roosevelt, who is like the chief of police for New York City. And she carries a little gun, and she's just completely like a feminist character. Oh, it's a great, it's a great book. Yeah, Lonesome Dove. I try to read like once every couple of years. And any other novels that just come my way. Who's your favorite musician? Michael Campbell. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. I'm like, I wonder what she's gonna say. I know what you better say. <laughs> Now, we always listen to stuff in the kitchen, like we'll be cooking and stuff. And, and we've been going through, we went and saw this, um, there was a movie up at the Dundee and it was about Laurel Canyon and all of the people in the 60s that were hanging out in Laurel Canyon. So we were like listening to a whole bunch of like the birds and the Beach Boys the other day. We were like, should we listen? It was like, like you know, the books too, like Moby Dick's like, should we listen to Pet Sounds? Is right. it really that... So, all right, let's try it. We're like, yeah, let's turn it. Let's, let's, let's that's fine. <laughs> nice theremin. Yeah. Do you have any bucket list roles of shows that you would like to do? Oh, bucket list. That's the other thing about getting old, Dana. Like there's like, it. It, it's, it's like you see them in a rear view mirror and you're just like, well, that would have been fun. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I always wanted to play Portia in The Merchant of Venice. Mm. I always wanted to uh, take a crack at, oh, who's the character? It's it's an O'Neill. I'm totally blanking. It's an O'Neill play, and it is... Moon for the Misbegotten? Yes. Thank you. I can't remember her name. Josie? Josie, yeah. I always wanted to do that one. 
<laughs> and then Denise always, Chevalier did that. Did she? Oh, she would have been she great. She did that like a number of years ago for Laurie Obradovich. Yeah. And it was like the, and Denise is an awesome actress. It was like the best thing I saw her in because. It's such a great role. It's such a great role. And it was outside of what you normally would see her in because mm-hmm. she's so good with the comedy. Yeah. So to see her, and she was amazing. And oh. to this day, I'm like, that is like my favorite role that you've done because. That's great. It was outside of what we normally see you perform. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah. You would have been awesome as Josie. Oh, thank you. You know what I wanted to do? And and I I lobbied for it really hard when Bridget did Julius Caesar a few years back. I was like, I want to do Cassius. I want to play I want to play that guy. And then I'm talking to Susie Collins like a couple of years ago and she was like, Oh yeah, I played Cassius. You know? <laughs> I was like you you is there anything you haven't done? Right. <laughs> Susie Collins, you brilliant woman. Exactly. Yeah. So I, oh, yeah. So there's there's all these ones that are in the rearview mirror. I'm trying to think of ones that are like down the road that I could play. You know what? I'd like to take a crack at again. I'd love to take a crack at the Beauty of the Queen of Lanon. Yeah. I played the mom when I was in my 20s. And now I'm like old and I could like take a crack at that. There you go. That'd be, she's, she's so gross. <laughs> my parents went and saw that and like they still have nightmares. I'm like, would you ever do that again? I was like, yeah, well, I'd be mag. <sighs> What's your favorite swear word? Do I have to limit it to one? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. Motherfucker's a big one. I love... <laughs> I'm in love with Deadwood and with Calamity Jane. <laughs> like, and the way that she says, you cocksucker! I mean, it's like... <laughs> I. Every time I run into um, Bill Hudson, I'm always like, Bill! Bill! Gary! I just, I love, I love swearing like Calamity Jane. Um, and then I like, I like making like, like random, like swear words. So, like, you know, that shit cock up something. I don't know. I'm not drinking, but like, you know, someday you should do like a Christmas show and then bring everyone over and like, we'll like try to like do like some kind of dramatic reading of A Christmas Carol, but we'll just drink in the middle of it and then just like show everybody what it's like when theater people get drunk and tell stories. I could make that happen. You should make that happen. I should make that happen. Mm -hmm. Coming this December. Mm Mm-hmm. A women's yep. adaptation of a Christmas Carol. Yep, it'd be like drunk history. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> I think I think it's a brilliant idea. There you we should go. totally do it. There we go. That's mm-hmm. our collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> Lori Campbell, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, Dana, thank you for having me. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 five. That's theater talk.